This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Einstein and Gogo. I'm the artist formerly known as Dr. Shane before I got a cold and lost my voice. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And I must say, happy Father's Day to you and to oh. all the dads, uh, granddads, stepdads, uncles, and special parents out there celebrating today's special parent day. Indeed. I love a made-up holiday. Oh, They're fantastic. Well, well, it's a good excuse to um, <laughs> to eat pancakes, I just generally, like in my house. Oh, that didn't happen in my house. I made myself some toast <laughs> and I got my butt into the studio. It's the best I could do. Uh, my voice is a little off today, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, done the best I can eating pineapples and all sorts of home remedies. Of course, none of which work. Get some pharmaceuticals into you. Yeah, I just took some panadol. Yeah, right. It's all good. Um, but we have a real, a really big show. We've got some great guests today. We're going to be talking about neurological disorders. We're going to be talking about stem cells, um, with them and stroke and neurodegenerative dementia and how, um, these things can potentially offset a bit, um, or the damage at least by physical activity. So we've got guests from all over the place today, which is going to be fantastic. We do have, um, though, an important thing to say, and that is to thank everyone who subscribed last week to the program and to the station. That was absolutely awesome. We were really, you know, touched by the generosity of so many people, especially all those people who donated and added to their subscriptions and subscribed passionately and everyone else who just subscribed. It really makes a big difference to us. And I like to think that my fuel tank of eagerness to come to the station gets refilled during Radiothon. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. even though Radiothon's over, it is not too late to subscribe. It's and not- it's also not too late to go into the run for the prizes. Yeah. I believe that if you subscribe and pay up before... 28th, 5pm on the 28th. of September. You will be in the draw for some of those prizes, and also you'll still you'll feel the love and get the special um, Triple R special fortieth uh, anniversary bumper sticker and membership card. And membership so card. So the, the actual the subscriber card is a special one this year. It's not oh. the same as the usual one. It's a special fortieth anniversary we one. We are celebrating forty years of Three Triple yeah. R. Yeah, it's very cool. And um, the only sad thing is the the phone answerers that were habiting our green room last week are gone, so the place feels a bit quiet. And I, dead. Know, I, I walked in and there wasn't a, yeah. a, a room full of people to. Yeah, it's a bit sad, but um, but subscribe via the web, folks, if you can. It's greatly appreciated. We would love to hear from you over the next uh, few weeks because you've got a little bit of time to do it. Now, let's jump into some science news. Dr. Crystal, what has been floating your boat this week? Uh, Sunday morning pop quiz. What is the world's largest carnivorous marsupial? Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't even take a guess at that. Well, I learnt this fact from my son's um, Australian animal book that he got from the library this week. It's Nothing actually, like a kid's book to teach you science. I'm learning a lot <laughs> about insects and dinosaurs and animals. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the Tasmanian devil. Really? Yes, the but world's the largest big. carnivorous mammal. Kind of the size of well, a wombat. Marsupial, marsupial. Marsupials marsupial. don't, aren't yeah, generally yeah. very big, I guess. Mm, mm. But um, anyway, apparently it's the Tassie devil, carnivorous. So, you know, wallaby might be bigger than a um, a devil, but it's a, uh, not a carnivorous marsupial. But anyway, the Tasmanian devil. But as many of our listeners may know, um, the Tassie devil population is facing um, a threat of extinction mm. from the uh, devil <coughs> facial tumour disease. And this is something um, that's ravaged the population since it first appeared in 1996 and has an extremely high mortality rate. In fact, at first they thought it was 100% mortality rate from this facial tumour disease and it's actually decreased the population by 80%. That's a very large number. It's it's a huge loss and what it's actually doing is creating 
this extreme evolutionary pressure on that population. It's creating this real bottleneck from a, a, a genetic sense. Um, but what we're seeing, and this is this paper that was released this week in Nature Communications, <laughs> is there's actually almost accelerating the evolutionary genetic resistance um, to this particular pressure that's on the population. So this is research that was carried out um, across the world um, between collaboration of researchers in the US, the UK and here in Australia. And they studied the genomes, so the genome sequences of 300 devils, and they had samples back sort of pre-disease so and then mm-hmm. post-disease. So they're looking at um, uh, over 15 years um, at, the, at the genomes from three different regions in Tasmania and looking at how the genomes have changed. So these um, very wide genome analyses. And they actually pulled out uh, differences in two very specific regions um, that seem to be under this acute selection pressure. So they're changing faster in these regions than the rest of the genome would be. You would normally expect genes to change over time. And these two regions have known links to immune function and cancer activity in humans. So, so they're trying to work out what the genes do in the devils. They're like, well, those genes kind of look a lot like the genes we know have a particular function in humans. Mm. So we see these genes are probably linked to immune activity, which could be helping them to accelerate their um, evolutionary process to develop resistance very quickly. And they think that these genes are actually spreading through the population in sort of four to six generations, which from an evolutionary perspective... It's crazy. It's crazy. But then yeah, you yeah. think of the pressure that's on this population 80 percent mortality Mm. rate that means that if there is any selective advantage in having these genes that that's going to come through very clearly Mm. and so it kind of really gives you this impression of how evolution is a dynamic process it is happening all the time and then when these particular um pressures come up and in this case it's a disease but in other cases for other animals it might be an environmental pressure we can actually see quite rapid um evolution and and genetic responses um in terms of being able to come up with these resistance genes however we can't rely on um, evolution alone because this population is facing a big threat. So there's a bit of other news from some of the other activities that are being put in place to try and um, save the devils from extinction. And one of those is the um, Tasmanian Devil Ark population, which, again, our listeners may have heard about because we've had Mm, guests on um, because that Ark population is here in Victoria, at Mm. least one of them, isn't it? Yeah, Hillsville. Hillsville. Um, And actually this week the Ark population welcomed their 200th baby. Wow, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, and you know what? They called her Joan of Arc. <laughs> I know. Way up there, How folks. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got so so that's one other strategy. Um, there's kind of like an insurance po- policy, which is creating a population of Tasmanian devils who are um, who are disease free. Mm. So hopefully, when the day comes where we've either eliminated this um, disease or we've come up with a, a vaccine, that this this um, arc population can then be released into the wild. And speaking of the vaccine, another piece of devil news this week. <laughs> you were related. I know. No, like, it's just been like Tasmanian devil news. It's just mm. been amazing. Um, the, uh, so they are working on a vaccine against this particular tumour facial disease and 33 vaccinated Tasmanian devils who are healthy were released into the wild this week um, to see if the vaccination they've received will actually protect them when they're exposed into the into the wild community. And um, there's a bit of criticism the last time they released a group of vaccinated uh, Tasmanian devils because a very large percentage of them ended up as roadkill mm. within a very short period oh. of time. So this time they've put some um, satellite tracking collars on them and the collars have reflective tape on them so hopefully the cars will see them. Um, but hopefully it won't give them a disadvantage to being seen by other predators. But I'm not sure if Tassie devils have a, a natural predator. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen a vet 
like I remember being up at Hillsville Sanctuary once when they were doing some of the examination of some of the, the Tassie devils and they're vicious little buggers. <laughs> <laughs> and they have this sort of high, high pitch. That's you know, where the cartoon scream. comes from, Oh, it right? does, it does. <laughs> and, and I was, you know, it was amazing just watching them get, you know, I thought they were sort of pulling some sort of, you know, massive taipan out of a bag, <laughs> but it was this Tassie devil and they had to anesthetize it or at least, you know, put it under before they could get it out of this bag. Oh, wow, yeah. And so they put the, 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 you know, the, um, the breathing apparatus over the sort of hessian of the bag and allowed it to breathe through that before they could get it out because this thing was, you could see it in the bag, like it was just going crazy. <laughs> well, and, you know, they were just doing a standard veterinary exam, but they, um, they're pretty feisty. So I'm not sure what would be, um, you know, a, a predator for a Tassie devil. I mean, maybe a well, well-placed dingo might have a crack, but. A car, though. A car, well, a car. I think yeah. they are scavengers <laughs> as well, so they're yeah. often drawn to other roadkill. Um, and so there's all, they've also done a, a very, a much broader education campaign in the region right. where they're releasing yeah. them. So, so I, I, I'm actually, I mean, whilst this tumour facial disease mm. is creating an enormous amount of concern for the health of these animals, they're responding genetically. We're responding, um, through creating an ARC population and a vaccine. So I think even though, um, this is a great concern because we've already lost one of our Tasmanian um, species mm. in a yeah, Tasmanian tiger. Yeah. We don't want to lose the Tasmanian devil as well. Mm. I actually feel that this week I've heard three pieces of good news that make me hopeful that we will be able to save that population of animals. Yeah, no, and that would be a great thing because it is an iconic... You know, it's interesting, we, we often ignore the non-iconic species and that's sad, but this is one of the top top species that we have in this country and it would be a shame as you say like the tasmanian tiger just to see it vanish if there's if there's a way that we can preserve it and uh, folks if if you know if you haven't i mean it's it's horrific but have you know google this facial tumor tasmanian devil and you see the pictures of it it's actually it's it's an awful awful disease that they're getting and i can't imagine it's too comfortable for these devils i mean half of their face is literally covered in these disgusting tumor type scenarios wrecks their vision everything it's just it's dreadful it's really also dreadful. quite fascinating because it's also it's only one of three known diseases of its type because mm. it's so highly transmissible between animals like mm. as, a, as a cancer as a tumor disease and we tried telling the devils not to bite each other but apparently that didn't work so they are a bit uh, feisty. Anyway, we're going to take a break in a sec. I did want to mention though the because um, I'm going to do some of my news hopefully at the end of the show if we um, if we have time. But there was the Planet of the Round Proxima Centauri came out this week, which was you know big news that we've found. This is the closest star to ours, so it's very close, and maybe in the habitable area. But don't get too excited, folks. That's that doesn't mean anything just yet. Venus is in our habitable habitable zone. I'm not too excited about living on Venus. Pretty hot there, anyway. Three. Uh, you are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us is Professor Roberto Capai. He's from the Department of Pathology at the University of Melbourne. Roberto, welcome to RRR. Hi, Shane. Um, now, first of all, congratulations. You, you have um, recently been announced as the winner of the prestigious Bethlehem Griffiths Research Foundation Medal. Correct. Tell us a bit about that. What does that mean? I mean, what is this medal given out for? So it's given out to uh, people who work in neurological diseases, Mm -hmm. either clinically or basic research. And my work is really in basic research. So I guess it's looking at probably 22 years of my work in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, Mm. prions, and 
recently traumatic brain injury. Yeah. So it's kind of recognising the work I've done, but also the work of my colleagues and people within my group over many years. Well, congratulations. I Thank mean, it's a, it's a great accolade, and I'm sure it's very well deserved. And there's a lot of, as you say, it's a long time, more than two decades of work. So well done. Um, let's let's talk a bit about these diseases because they're, they're in the news a lot. We see them in the movies. We see them in the news. Most people know someone with one of these diseases. I think it's fair to say these days. Um, it, it feels like they're on the rise, but I, I, I'm wondering whether that's true or whether it's that we're more aware? Um, so I think, yeah, I think awareness is probably one thing, but potentially I think they probably are on the, on the rise. We've got a much ageing population. Mm. As we're getting better at treating um, heart disease, cancers, those people will live longer. And the, the key um, risk factor is, is age. So the longer you live, the greater the yeah. chance of getting Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. So we are on this upward slope for towards these diseases. That's why they're a major concern for society. Mm. Talk us through something like Alzheimer's. I mean, what's happening in the body when, when we, we get that? Because this is a, a quite progressive disease that occurs over quite a period of time, doesn't it? Quite a long time. So it's probably even probably about 20 years before people actually present with some sort of memory complaints. Mm. So Alzheimer's mm. to do with memory. Probably 20 years before that, things start to go wrong within the brain. And the genetics has sort of told us certain genes which are involved in this, certain proteins and uh, molecules. So the amyloid peptide is one of the key players so this peptide will change its shape it changes its shape from being a, a good shape into a bad shape and then once it assumes this, this different shape it becomes um, toxic and will start to kill the um, the brain cells and that triggers a, a pathway of other molecules to to change their behavior but that, that happens over a 20-year period mm. and therein lies the challenge of trying to identify someone well before the disease presents itself, if you're going to start targeting, for, inst- for instance, the amyloid beta peptide at a time when it's started to do its damage, and later on may be too late to start to target that, that particular mm. molecule. Now, my understanding is that some people have, um, <coughs> excuse me, a scenario where they have a genetic disposition towards Alzheimer's, but not everyone. Is that, is that right, or do they all have some genetic link? So there are, there are probably about 10% of cases, there is a clear genetic inheritance of Alzheimer's disease. The grandfather, mm-hmm. the mother, then the, and then the, the son gets it, and we know which, which of those genes that there are. The other 90% we call sporadic Alzheimer's disease. We think that there's probably a large genetic component in those people as well, and we have identified certain risk factors, so apolipoprotein E or APOE, if you get, there's three different um, genes for isoforms of APOE. APOE4 is, a, is the major risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So if you're, if you're E4, then you've got a, a much higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. doesn't mean you'll, you will get it, mm. but it's got a much higher risk. So we're identifying these genetic risk factors as well. Yeah, so, I mean, that's in contrast to things like my understanding of things like Huntington's disease, that if you have the risk factor for that, you will get it at some stage in your life. Is that correct. right? I mean, if you've yeah. got the mutant form of the Huntington yeah. gene, then you'll definitely get Huntington's disease. That, that yeah. is correct. Alzheimer's is, is not that clear cut, except for these 10% of cases where mm. it's clearly mm. a familial form of the, of the disease. Now, you mentioned this 20-year span. At, at what point in that period are we able to start doing some sort of diagnos- diagnosis that they, you may be having as all the progressions occurring? Because it seems as though you, you want to stop it early on. If there's any sort of scenario that's going to help people with this d- disease because it's destruction parts of the brain, you have to catch it early. Correct. And, so, that, and that's where the field is focused on trying to identify what are called um, biomarkers, mm-hmm. a change in either your blood or maybe in your um, spinal fluid or within the brain itself. So there's been some really interesting progress, exciting progress, in being able to actually see this amyloid beta peptide in the brain. 
and this is using um, PET scanning. Okay. So these are living people, mm-hmm. and the idea there is potentially we can start to identify someone who's got a certain amount of this protein in the brain well before they present with clinical symptoms, or we can take a blood test and show that they've got particular changes, and that's where the field is really focused on, trying to identify mm-hmm. biomarkers, and there's, there's some very exciting progress being made about identifying certain um, proteins or even genetic changes within the blood as well. Mm. And is it like other diseases <coughs> where the earlier that you are able to detect and diagnose the, and the earlier you can start therapeutic intervention? Or um, so, so if we do get biomarkers or imaging techniques that say, yes, you know, we feel that, you know, you, you might be on a progression pathway to Alzheimer's disease, what can you do at that point? Indeed. So actually there have been a number of clinical trials of, of testing drugs and most of the, well, they've all failed to a certain extent for, mm. for different reasons. Yeah. One of the reasons they may be failing is because they're actually trying to treat people with a, a drug where what they're trying to target is it's too, too late. And if you could identify those people much earlier on and you'd start to treat them with this, this particular drug that 10 or 15 years beforehand, then you might have a greater chance of, of the drug working. And that's where we need to identify the biomarkers to identify those people. And so what they're doing now is actually identifying, taking these familial cases, these people mm. with the genetic, yep. you know they're going to get the disease. And they're starting, there are trials now taking these genetic cases and treating them with these drugs because they're a guaranteed group who will get the, the disease. Because the other problem with these trials is you're treating people who actually don't know whether they'll get the disease or not. Mm. Now, um, I mean, it's, you know, I hate to say some of my knowledge comes from films, but... This you, you mentioned we have the increase in the number of people with this condition because of our ageing profile. But I remember in the film um, Still Alice, it was a very young person who developed Alzheimer's. I mean, in terms of the testing and the diagnosis and so forth, I mean, what, what does that mean for what we'd be trying to do there? Because I'm not sure what percentage of people end up with Alzheimer's at a very young age. It's, it's a very small percentage. Once again, mm. it comes back to these familial cases. Some can be very aggressive. So yep. people in their 20s or 30s mm, right. can get Alzheimer's disease. I think the youngest case might be 14 or 15 years of age. They're, they're very, very rare. The majority of these familial cases will probably still present around about 50 years of age, where then the, the typical sporadic will occur mid-60s to 70 years of age. Mm. So once again, it comes back to being able to identify people with a, a simple test, and that might happen when they're born. It might happen when they're 30, there's some sort of biochemical change, or maybe I sway to about 50 or, or 60 when maybe you start to present with slight memory problems, and then you can say, right, you've got Alzheimer's. Right. No, you don't have Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Now, Roberto, um, they didn't just give you the award for hanging around for 22 years. Let's, let's, um, let's talk about a couple of the big things that have come out of your lab during that period, because sure. I think um, ob- ob- yeah, obviously you've made a quite substantial contribution to this field. What, what's been the, the highlights during that time? So as, as I'll go back to what I said initially. We're interested in this amyloid beta peptide, which changes it, its, its shape. So what we've been trying to do over many years is to understand what happens to A-beta with, and why does it become a, a toxic molecule. So we're trying to identify the toxic form of this particular peptide, so mm-hmm. see what is the shape of the toxic molecule. And we think it's probably... Because this protein, will, this peptide will come together. So you've got a monomer, a dimer, a trimer. So there's these multiple subunits come together, and we want to identify what form of that peptide is the toxic species. So we've actually made quite significant progress in identifying maybe it's the um, the trimeric form of the A-beta or, or the, or the, um, the tetrameric form of, of the peptide, seems to be the one that is much more toxic to, to brain cells. Now, we need to now translate that into human cells and then obviously try and identify 
drugs which actually prevent it from forming these sort of toxic species. Is, is this something that we have in our brains normally and it's normally sort of flushed out or taken care of and then we just lose the capacity to do that or is it something that just starts being produced no. during that period? So A-beta is a normal um, mm. byproduct of other biochemical processes. We all got A-beta in our brains. We all probably got um, bits of A-beta that's accumulated, sort of changed shape. So we all probably got that in our brain. Some of us will obviously get too much of it in, in the brain or in a form that is, is going to be toxic to our brain cells. Some people are probably just lucky that they can handle the toxic form of, of the peptide. Their brain cells are such, because of their genetic makeup, are able to resist the toxic effects. So you can have people 80, 90 years of age with a lot of amyloid in their brain and they're perfectly normal, no, mm. no memory complaints. And other people who will actually get Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And has that created some controversy about the role of these amyloid proteins in the disease progression? Indeed it has. There's always been an ongoing discussion around is amyloid actually causing the disease or is it just because we've all got it and, and people can be quite normal with it. But I think that genetics is, is quite strong. Um, genetics doesn't lie in a sense. And the way the data is coming out with these imaging studies, we can see the, the increase of amyloid within the brain and that can then correlate with the um, you know, um, brain cell loss over time as, as well. So I think the data is from the, I'd say from the genetics is very strong to suggest that it's having some role mm. and, and probably a, mm. a, a direct role in causing the disease. Mm. So I think we're comfortable with that now. Roberto, I just want to finish on something because you and I um, had a great discussion when you first arrived at the station around time frames. And I think it's important that we give people a, a good feel for this because people who know someone or a family member or themselves have this condition, the time frame that they're interested in is days and weeks and months, whereas in research it's typically much longer. Where are we sitting in terms of having real, you know, real ways of detecting and potentially stopping this disease what's the time are we talking decades is that is that where we should be thinking probably not decades i think if some of these more recent trials sort of move forward and are successful we just had some press in the last few days around this antibody trial um, from biogen and that now that was a phase one trial this needs to go, go to phase three there's another mm. trial coming up in december that is a phase <coughs> three and that'll be um, disclosed if they've shown some promise then you probably then got maybe a five-year window that these mm. things will start to enter into cl clinical use. And in fact, I, th I think the one in December, if they get a, a positive result, they'll probably start pushing quite hard. This yeah. American company with the FDA to try and get it listed. It, it doesn't. That these drugs may not be the drugs that will eventually cure people, but they might start to have some sort of um, positive effects, and they mm. give us then the confidence to develop other drugs which have a similar sort of. Um, mechanism of action so it's kind of the proof of concept mm. and, move, and move it forward so answer your question it's always this five or ten year time frame i, I think technology is moving very nicely and hopefully it's more five to seven rather than than decades mm. as, as you sort of said shane i oh, know thanks for i think it's very good to give people a, a correct time frame without the hype and and you know so that they know what they're up against and there's also government regulations that just you cannot put these things onto yeah. market straight away it does yeah. have to go through a proper process mm. professor roberto capai thank you very much for coming in and chatting to us today and good luck with this work it's very important thank you very much shane roberto capai is from the department of pathology in the university of melbourne we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with our next two guests who are both from the Flory Institute. Three, triple, ah. 
Uh, you are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me are our two uh, guests from the Flory Institute, Chris Sherbin and Liam Johnson. Welcome, guys. How are you going? Hi, Shane. Hey, Shane. Now, um, Liam, I'm going to get you to move a bit closer to that mic because you, you're such a, a beastie man that your voice is coming out a little low. Um, now, my understanding is the Flory is a business subscriber to the station, which is great. So a huge thank you. To, to you guys for doing that. Not a problem at all. It's good to be here. Yeah, no, that's great. Now, um, we do have a, well, so far at least in the show, we have a bit of a theme about uh, dementia and neurodegeneration. Um, you guys have been working in particular in the area of stroke and what happens post-stroke. Before we get into the dementia part of that, I want to sort of just run through. I remember when I was younger, stroke and heart attack seemed like the same thing to me. And I think out there, a lot of people, they don't distinguish between the two, but they are quite, quite substantial. Well, they're completely different things. What happens when a person has a stroke, Chris? I'll st- you're the imaging guy. You- <laughs> <laughs> I suppose there's a couple of things. There's essentially stroke is broken into two main areas. One's called ischemic stroke. Well, essentially stroke is a disruption in blood supply to the brain. Mm-hmm. So in ischemic stroke, you have reduced blood supply to the brain that could be because of a blockage or something gets caught up in the arteries so blood's Mm -hmm. not getting where it needs to blood and oxygen aren't getting where they need to the other sort of stroke is called a hemorrhage stroke and that's where there's too much blood essentially a blood vessel bursts and there's a flow of blood into the brain tissue Mm. which is essentially toxic Okay. Now, as opposed to, I suppose, then cut the heart attacks. Heart attacks. Heart attacks. Heart. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So you're not pumping blood anywhere. Um, now, so what, what's, I mean, we, we, we all sort of have seen these images of people who, you know, have, um, one side of their body, um, with reduced function or maybe more, all these different things. But, but in terms of dementia, I haven't really heard a lot about what this means. I mean, what's going on in terms of the brain post stroke in the dementia phase? Shane, that is a very good question. <laughs> that's <laughs> why, that's why they pay me the big bucks here at Triple R. <laughs> um, well, I suppose that the way it used to work was people just, to sh- people had a stroke. And then no one knew really what happened after a stroke. Mm. Now, coincidentally, it was um, our, our supervisor, Amy Brodman, who is a neurologist, and she was presenting at a conference, and someone said, what happens to people after a stroke? What happens to their brain after a stroke? And it was no one really knew, and that was quite surprising because the research is showing that there is a very, very high likelihood of dementia after a stroke. So actually a, a, a five times increase in the prevalence of dementia after a stroke. But, but we're not talking about the damage caused by the stroke locally in time here, you know, over weeks. We're talking about long-term development of dementia. Is that exactly. right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, what, what, the, what the, the, the feeder project for this study found, it's called the Canvas Project, found that there's a likelihood before a stroke happens, people who are going to have the stroke have reduced brain volumes. Okay. So this is something that is even happening before a stroke. Then once a stroke, this brain degeneration continues on. So it speaks to the fact that there's likely cardiovascular, cerebrovascular um, issues happening a long time before a stroke occurs and then a stroke happens and brain health is reduced even further ongoing. Mm. Okay, and that, and that can lead to a five-time times change in your chance of... And so then once you have this stroke, you have a much greater likelihood of developing a dementing condition. Hmm. I mean, it's extraordinary. I hadn't heard any of this sort of these numbers before. Um, now, we, we know, so on the front side, we know that the time it takes for you to get treatment when there's a stroke is critical to your recovery. Absolutely. But you guys are, are working sort of on the on the other side of that, which is the, you know, what happens post-stroke 
what can you do? Now, um, Liam, you're the exercise physiologist in the room. I mean, you wouldn't expect people to sort of be jumping out of bed and doing exercise post a stroke. I mean, how how do you feed this into their treatment plan? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So um, early mobilisation is something that our group in particular is really interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, And so, yes, historically, people don't do much exercise or activity after a stroke. In fact, bed rest was the main prescription. But we're starting to think that that's perhaps not ideal that there's a, a, a range of kind of changes that are taking place in the brain early on um, in those first days to weeks after a stroke which we can kind of take advantage of or um, enhance through through physical activity and exercise and so mm. whilst we're not exactly sure when we should be mobilizing people early after a stroke we still think it's pretty important to get them mobilized early mm. um, and, 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 I mean, when you say mobilisation, I mean, what, what are we talking about? We're not talking about, you know, going for a 5K run here, are we? I mean, what, what, do, we, what do we mean by mobilisation? Yeah, so, um, <coughs> so early mobilisation, uh, our initial thoughts were just getting, pe- pe- it's just getting people out of bed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of my work on, on my own, we're doing a study of getting people to do exercise um, tests, so sub-maximal exercise tests within the first seven days after a stroke, wow. and we're showing that it's, they're, they're quite capable of doing that. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the kind of key elements of this is some won't be able to do it right. Not everyone that's had a yeah. stroke will be able to do this, but certainly we think that some can and, and will be able to do that. And so, you know, identifying or, or kind of un- unpacking who can and who can't and, and that optimal time window is the challenge for us. Are we approaching the point where regardless of condition because we've heard this in uh, some of this sort of stuff in cancer as well where recovery is affected by physical activity i mean are we getting to the i mean you must love this as an exercise physiologist i mean you guys are becoming you know it's like when uh, there was the queensland floods and everyone wanted the hydrologist it was like you know all of a sudden exercise physiologists are everywhere um is it i mean why is that is there something in in this sort of process that's changing our immune system or what's going on i mean do we know why this is so successful uh Short answer, no, not exactly, but we've got some pretty good ideas of what's happening. So there's a whole range, like I said, there's a whole range of changes in the brain that exercise can enhance. So um, angiogenesis and um, synaptogenesis, neurogenesis, so developing new neural networks and um, new blood vessels. So there's those changes. There's also the kind of direct effects of exercise on... um, on on conditions like dyslipidemia and uh, hypercholesterolemia and hypertension. So it changes the negative effects of those conditions, Mm -hmm. which a lot of stroke survivors have, these kind of comorbid conditions. It changes the effects of those. And then there's also these growth-like factors, so um, brain-drive neurotrophic factor and um, insulin-like growth factor. Growth factors and the the signalling pathways of those growth factors that we think are really important in driving Mm. um, these really positive changes as a result of exercise so yeah like you said i think we think exercise is really important right so i suppose we have yeah yeah yeah, absolutely we even have the fact that exercise improves people's mood Mm. people's outlook on life their social interactions some of the 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 best preventative courses people ask how do you stop dementia some of the best things to do eat well um eat well exercise and engage your brain in 
activity, whether that's mm. social activity, mm. reading, whatever it is, exercise does that. Gets people out, gets people in communities, gets them talking, gets them interacting. Mm. So now let's get to the science of it because, I mean, one of the things that I, I find interesting is we, we hear these things all the time. And there was a, there was a fourth one recently until, until about two weeks ago, which was Omega-3 tablets, which is now <laughs> out. You know, so we, we've got to always dive down to the science and say what's going on there. You're, you're, the, you're the, the imager. You're the guy who looks at the brains, Chris. So um, when you when you take a stroke patient post-stroke, look at the ex- exercise intervention. I mean, what sort of things can you see with the, the imaging that gives you a clue as to this is, this being positive? Sure. That's what this study, I suppose, will essentially tell. The, the, the preliminary results that have come through that fed this study were that with the, with the largest canvas project, larger canvas project I talked about, activity monitors were fitted to stroke, post-stroke patients just to see, incidentally, what happens with day-to-day movement and activity. Mm. And they found that people who had had a stroke and were more physically active in that they did more, their brain volumes shrunk less after okay. a stroke. Yeah. They were bigger. And so that's just on uh, on these imaging scans calculating cortical thickness, so how thick the brain matter is. And is that good? That is good. Okay, good. That is good. <laughs> we want bigger brains. Right. We want bigger brains. <laughs> we want bigger brains. Just making yeah. sure that wasn't a bad thing. <laughs> well, and it's... It's uh, you want your brain to stay as close to the size as it was born to stay. So yeah, right, yeah. In, you know, in some cases, you're not getting too big. No, exactly. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is a thing called inflammation, which is not <clears throat> yeah, a good yeah, thing. Yep, yep. Yeah, so that could be a problem. So uh, less reduction. Maybe we should say prever- pre- preserved preserved volume mm, is a better okay. better measure. Now that's just the preliminary um, preliminary way of looking at this. What we're hoping to do with this study in particular is we've we've got some really state-of-the-art imaging happening at the Flory, and we can measure things, not just brain volume, but the quality of the connections and the way that a one part of the brain connects to another, and something looking at what they call the the resting state activity, and that's a fancy, it's becoming a fancy little pop thing in in imaging, looking at the default mode network, so how our brain is operating at rest, essentially. And that gives a really good indication about the underlying connections, underlying interactions that are happening in our brain, and particularly how that relates to cognitive function. Hmm. Now, have you guys recruited all the people you need for this study, or are there still more that you need to bring in? I mean, it's happening now, right? Well, we're very excited because we have just recently been given ethics approval to start recruiting. Okay. So... It's it's a long process, yeah, but yeah, we're about yeah. to start. Yeah, so we got fun. Uh, the project's funded by the Heart Foundation. We got funding last year, and so we're in the process of yeah, really just about to start. So who fits your criteria? You're looking for pe- post people who are undergoing stroke, and they'll as part of their care be offered to be part of this study, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. sure. So we're starting this at the Austin Hospital. Uh, we're starting at the stroke wards there. So. Um, Liam, myself, and some of the other colleagues spend a bit of time on the wards, uh, meeting the patients, identifying which ones will be appropriate, and then we flag these patients at two, the ones who are appropriate come in at two months, and um, then Liam, he has an exercise program. Mm. Yeah, so we deliver an exercise, an eight-week exercise intervention, and then we'll get them back in immediately after to do post-stroke imaging and cognitive testing and exercise testing, mm. and then again at 12 months. Fantastic. Mm. Look, it sounds great, guys, and good luck with uh, the recruitment process. I know that can be timely and takes takes a lot of effort, but um, I think, uh, you know, as, as I said, there's, there's many areas at the moment where we're seeing the benefits of exercise in circumstances where 
in the past we've you know go to bed and watch TV for six months and you'll be fine. It, it's great to see this change occurring and um, and hopefully this study will give more you know solid data on on the fact that this is really working. So um, keep up the good work, good luck, and, and let us know how it goes. Thank great. you very much. Thanks for the support. Right. Thanks for having us in. Chris Sherbin and Liam Johnson, both uh, from the Flory Institute, working on this really important study with regards to post-stroke recovery. We're going to take a short break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with uh, Associate Professor Megan Monks and we're going to be talking about stem cells and where to buy them online. Not people. Don't do that. Three. Triple. In the studio now, we have Associate Professor Megan Muncy. She's from the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience at the University of Melbourne. Megan, I think you've been on the show before, haven't you? I certainly have. You have. I thought so. Maybe more than once. Now, you, I mean, it's interesting. We, we're back where we were a few years ago talking about stem cells. Um, let's, let's start there before we get into the issues occurring. Stem cells are... The cells in your body that basically keep your tissues healthy. And we just heard from the other guys talking about how the brain can can regenerate some of its mm. properties. So yep. neurogenesis is an example of stem cell activity. Right. Another example is the, the blood cells that get made by your bone marrow mm. and keep you healthy. Mm. Now, we're in the state at the moment where uh, are there any actual scientifically based stem cell therapies out there that I can go and see my GP, I get sent to a stem cell Th- you know, therapy specialist and get a particular treatment. What, I mean, I, I, I did hear something about some around the eye, but, you know, yeah. what, what, what's in existence? Well, I think the, the, the first one to mention is, again, blood. Mm. You know, we've been using cord blood and, mm. and yeah. bone marrow, stem cells derived from bone marrow, for over 40 years. Right. And we oh, yeah, use that to treat a, leukemias and... A bone marrow transplant is essentially a stem cell transplant. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Okay. Yep. But it's, it's sort of a, a technology where you're asking those stem cells to do the thing that they do usually in the body. Normally. Yep. So you're not really in any way manipulating them or asking them to change or perhaps grow into something else. Mm-hmm. You're not manufacturing a product effectively. Yep. Um, the example around the eye is really interesting. There's a, a particular type of vision loss where the eye, the vision is obstructed because the cornea at the front of the eye is damaged, yeah. often from an industrial burn or something like okay. that. And uh, what's a group of researchers uh, first in Italy were able to show, and again, it took 20 years to develop this product, but they were able to take a biopsy from the healthy part of the eye, just near the iris, and culture up some of these cells so they could make, if you like, a, a replacement uh, um, gra- uh, sh- uh, graft of cells that they could mm-hmm. take out the damaged part of the eye and put it over the top. Right, right. So, so that's, that's an example, and that's been now approved in Europe mm. for, for use. Mm. Now, when we last spoke about this, it was probably three or four years ago, um, we were talking about some of the sort of medical tourism, tourism as it's called, where someone sees a, you know, uh, an ad online about curing this, that or the other quite you know critical diseases you know well diseases in a critical phase you know where people are looking at death within probably a five-year period and they're traveling overseas and looking for any you know item of hope that they can find i mean this is still happening isn't it? there's Absolutely. heaps of this and it, in fact it's growing a recent mm. paper showed that there's hundreds of clinics around the world so there's this it, it's, it's easy to set up a website it's easy to say yeah. that you're going to cure someone but in reality um unfortunately that we we believe it's a false hope for 
with yeah. so many people. Yeah. Now, I always had the idea that this happened only in countries that didn't well regulate these things, but I hear, you know, from the information you sent through for the interview this week, um, that it's happening in Australia. Absolutely, and it has been since 2011, possibly before, but mm. that's when we first became aware of it. Okay, I mean, give us an idea of what, what's going on there, because this is not something I think many people would be aware of, that these bogus scenarios are, uh, are here. So it's a combination of, 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 of companies and, and providers who are working in this space, and I have to say it's a growing industry, yeah. but it, it, it's often linked to liposuction. Oh. So clinics that, you know, that you can, can take out fat from your body and the fluid that they take out, this of lipoaspirate, does contain a, a rich, a rich, a rich mixture of cells. And within that, there are probably stem cells, but they just take that suspension of cells and depending on the clinic and their particular sort of technology they like to use they'll relabel, re, re, repurpose that product if you like, that cell slurry and put it back into the patient and we're aware of treatments being sold for dementia for multiple sclerosis for uh, um, spinal cord injury Oh. And uh, often the the clinics are putting those cells, that crude preparation of cells, back into the vein of the patients and expecting these magical cells to float around in the body and find home to where they're needed. Now, now there's two. I mean, there's two issues here. I mean, one is, you know, what I call just absolute snake oil sales type stuff, which is taking people's money with no result. Disgusting. But there's also the secondary issue of, of damage. I mean, I mean, are we seeing that in these cases? I mean, it doesn't sound to me like this is something you want to be doing to your body. Well, well, no, and I think there are real risks. There's real risks of physical harm, and, and I think the, the most graphic example um, it, it occurred recently in the States where a gentleman who'd had a stroke, mm. who was a, a wealthy retired businessman and, and frustrated about the alternatives he was suggested, he travelled around the world and had a very similar preparation, had, went to several clinics, but had a very similar preparation of cells in amongst the other cells he had that grew a tumour in his spine because the cells were put back into the spine. So these cells... We don't really know what they're capable of doing. Mm. We hope that they will, will, will benefit. And one of the things I was going to say to you, um, is, is that, you know, we can't dismiss this completely outright. Yeah. There is potential in some of these cell types. Right. But we need to understand, study them and conduct proper clinical trials to evaluate whether there is true benefit, but also to explore safety. Yeah, I mean, there's potential I'll find a $50 note on the street, but it doesn't mean I walk around all day looking for it. Yeah. <laughs> And I think we have to, I mean, one of the things I wonder here is, so, I mean, where is this coming from? I mean, I, I, I keep thinking back to, you know, all that, you know, I've been doing this radio show for a long time and the immense amount of hype around stem cells that, to be fair, scientists and the media helping mm-hmm. them do it have put out there over decades and there hasn't been a lot of outcomes from some of them. I mean, great research outcomes, but in terms of actual treatments that are viable, there hasn't been a huge amount as yet. How much are we to blame? I mean, you know, we've kind of done the marketing for these industries, haven't we, in a sense? We've, we've sort of said to the appetite. I mean, we've, we've yeah. set, we've set this, this, if you like, the scene. Yeah. And it's very easy now to step into this kind of expectations gap because we're not delivering. Mm. And I, and I, I do want to say that we are making huge progress Absolutely. in basic yeah. research. Yeah. And, and a lot of the, the findings from stem cell research probably won't develop into cellular replacement therapies, but they will develop into perhaps identifying another therapeutic product mm. or a new drug mm. or, or just a greater understanding of the disease, yeah. which is all very valuable. And there are some stem cell therapies that are in late-stage phase yeah. two, phase yeah. three clinical trials that we may see come onto market. But I think it's very important to understand the process that these have to go through, to be, as you say, to go through these regulatory phases to get approval, to make sure we're assessing the risks versus the benefits. And, and I 
think that where I I feel really frustrated is where um, these industries are playing on patients' hope and mm. playing on patients, you know, um, when they're faced with a degenerative condition or something for which, you know, that, that the traditional therapies aren't delivering yeah, in the timeframes. You'll try anything. Yeah. And, and, and I feel that that's so exploitative and, and those people are, can be hugely taken advantage of by what is becoming a, a very concerning mm. industry. And, and I think damage. <laughs> I, I think it's not just the risk of, of physical harm, whether these cells grow into a tumour or whether they carry a contamination that give you an infection or, as we've just unfortunately heard in, uh, in New South Wales, where a woman died after yep. seeking treatment for dementia. Now, the cells didn't kill her per se but the method she had a complication from the the procedure she bled to death following the liposuction procedure now you could just say well that happens with liposuction sometimes but why was she having Mm. why was a woman with very advanced dementia having liposuction in the first place it's shocking now i mean it's uh, one of the things I, i think we should say is you know it's when we look at the scientists and, and the information being put out, it is hyped up some of it, and I, I acknowledge that, but to be fair to them, the only way to get grants these days in the dwindling pond of money is to do that. I mean, if you if you don't do that, you're not competitive. So, I mean, there's... Oh, and also, I think scientists are excited absolutely. about their science. And so they should be. Hmm. But I, I think there's a, there's a big difference between being excited about the potential of your science and commercially marketing, mm. pushing, mm. uh, and, and, and encouraging people to take undue risks for, yeah. for, for the person's, the, 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 that clinic's sort of financial gain. Mm. So yep. whose job is it to crack down on these clinics? Well, I, I think <coughs> it's, it's not just one group. I think there's, there's multiple players in this area. There's professional standards around medical practice. There's professional, there's, there's, there's manufacturing standards that should be adhered to. And one of the reasons we have such a growth in the Australian sector is that the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, who have, I would say, carriage of this area, don't see the use of the patient's own cells in this situation as necessarily within their remit. Yeah, right. So, so they're it's a not loophole. I, I believe very much it's a loophole, Chris. So if we, if we, in the last 30 seconds, to give people advice, I mean, is it if I can't claim this on Medicare, I should keep away from it? Is, is that is that is that the benchmark? I, I think I think that's a bench. That's a great benchmark. I think um, think twice. Uh, mm. about what someone's marketing to you and what they're going to gain from it. Yeah. Get as informed as you can and speak to someone who's impartial. And although your GP may not feel as though they're completely up to date or your specialist completely up to date with the latest perhaps stem cell research, don't discount that. Mm. The fact that they mm. don't know about it yeah. should probably ring a few alarm bells. Yeah, it's that issue of a patient advocate, isn't it, and making sure you have one. That might be your GP, it might be someone else, but everyone should have one in a sense. If yeah, and, and there is some great information that sort of counters the marketing message online. Mm. So one of the, the websites that I'm involved in, in addition to Stem Cells Australia, is is the Closer Look at Stem Cells website, which is an international um, yeah. uh, society um, mm. for stem cell research website. So please have go and do there. some more research. Yep. Megan, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us. I hope we don't have this same conversation in five years, although I suspect we probably will. Well, I think we should if it's yeah, still if happening. Still there, we, definitely, we definitely will. <laughs> Associate Professor Megan Munsey from the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience from the University of Melbourne. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Somehow Dr. Crystal and I have managed to both not cough our way through this particular episode. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much for coming in. Always a pleasure. <laughs> This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.